There were unions that were formed to protect uh, workers from these unsafe work conditions and make things a little more fair when it came to the workplace. And the good news is now, uh, after all of these years of, of all of these different laws and unions, the good news is here we are in 2023 and everything is great, finally. Uh, everyone loves their job. Uh, everyone works uh, 100% because they love their boss and they just love their uh, the organization that they work for. Uh, really, if, if we could put it this way, the workplace has become a paradise. I think that's, that's what I'm... And then you're like, this guy is out of his mind. The, the paradise maybe is a little bit strong of a word to describe maybe about how most of you feel about work. Maybe, maybe some of you tend to see work as a necessary evil. I was asking a couple of different people this week in preparation for this, you know, what, why do we work? Why do we do that? And, and the most common answer I got back was we work because we have to. It's a, it's a necessary evil. We, we have to work to get the money, to pay the bills, to buy the stuff. That's why, we, that's why we work. Maybe you tend to see work that way. Maybe you tend to see work as just a, a hurdle that you have to get over so that you can get to Friday so you can actually enjoy your life for a few days before heading back uh, to work again on Monday and the misery of it. If that's how you view work, can I just say, man, we spend a, a large portion of our lives working. And if that's the, the viewpoint, if that's your attitude towards work, I feel bad for you because that's a, that's a big chunk of our lives that seems like some people are just miserable in. And I think we can do, I think we can do better than that. Maybe it has to do with some of the things that uh, are part of the workplace. Uh, there's a lot of changing happening right now in the workplace, and maybe it has left you uh, frustrated, maybe even afraid if you think about some of the changes, and it's rapid, uh, changing rapidly. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen a big shift away from professional office work time to much more at-home work time, and, and that has probably some good things about it and maybe some negative things, but it's a change that's been happening. Uh, artificial intelligence has been uh, really leading us toward a major shift in in the way that we will work in the future and maybe even in some of the things that we will or will not even do in our work. And it is, it is changing rapidly. And, of course, you always have people who lust for power and they like to push things like guaranteed income, just trying to convince people, you don't have to work. Why, why work? Just put us in charge of your entire life and we'll take, we'll take care of everything. And I'm, I'm sure that'll work out fine. Maybe it's not necessarily the changes, the rapid changes that uh, you are afraid of or feel frustrating. Maybe it's just the challenges that many people face at work. Uh, finding the right balance. I know this is hard for a lot of us, just finding the right balance between our work life and our family life and all the things that we have to manage. There's only so many hours in a day, only so many hours in a week. And, and managing that tension of time and scheduling and prioritizing things, that can be hard. Um, staying true to our, our biblical values, our, our morals, our ethics, uh, depending on the company or the organization that you work for, 
Uh, there has been a trend towards many companies uh, going all in on uh, DEI and ESG agendas. And because of that, uh, there have been some folks who have found themselves in, in kind of a fight between themselves and the values, the ethics that they hold true, and their employers who have very different ethics and values uh, and sometimes people have either lost their jobs or are in danger of losing their jobs because of it. And that can be, that can be scary. Sometimes it's just the normal stuff of dealing with a difficult boss, uh, dealing with difficult coworkers, or maybe you just don't like your job. Uh, maybe you find it uh, to be meaningless. Maybe you find your job, you look at it, and you just feel like it's, it's, it's pointless or it's just an unpleasant job. And all of those, those things can make it difficult to want to get up in the morning and, and go to work day after day after day. And at some point, some people think, what is, what is the point of all of this? It's just, a, uh, just an ongoing cycle, just this routine, get up, go to work, work for the weekend. And, and that would be an absolutely, I think, miserable way to view life. I think we can do better than that. These, these changes, these challenges might be common, but this morning I'd like us to start thinking about what it would mean for you and me to have a biblical worldview applied to the area of work in our lives. Now, we should have, as followers of Jesus, we should be applying a biblical worldview to every area of our lives, but let's think specifically this morning about our work. Does the way you view work match up with God's word? Does the way you view work match up with, with a theology of work uh, that, uh, that comes out of careful study throughout the word of God? Maybe you've got a job that you get paid for. Maybe you work at home and you manage the work of your home. Maybe you're a full-time student. Maybe you are retired and you get to pick the time and place of your work. Wherever you find yourself in life, what if we brought to that work, what if we brought to that effort a biblical perspective providing, I believe, providing for us fulfillment in our work? A better attitude. Wouldn't that be nice to have a better attitude when we work? Or to have absolute confidence and courage whenever we face the kinds of challenges that can be a little scary when it comes to our morals and our biblical, uh, biblical ethics in our work. What if this? What if we stopped allowing the cultural definitions of work to define us which is easy to do, to fall into just the routine, you know, uh, we're just working for the weekend, those kinds of attitudes. It's easy to fall into that. But what if we said, no, that's not how I'm going to view my life. That's not how I'm going to view my work. Instead, I'm going to define work from a biblical perspective. Listen, I, I truly don't care if, uh, if you wear white every day of the year after late, I don't, I don't care about those kinds of things. What I do care about is the fact that we spend a large portion of our lives at work. And without a solid theology of work, without a solid biblical view of what work is and why we do it and what our attitude should be about it, 
Man, we're going to spend a lifetime frustrated, bored, or afraid. And I believe God wants much better things than that for our lives. So let's talk about a biblical perspective, a theology of work. Let's, let's talk about how you and I can define work instead of work defining us. Would you join me in Genesis chapter 2? We're going to start with the most fundamental. As we, as we build a theology of work, let's start with the most fundamental of questions that needs to be answered, and that is why. Why do we work? Is your core reason, I can't answer this for you, but is your core reason for work what we mentioned earlier? I, I have to work. I do it because I have to. I have to work to get the money to pay the bills, to buy the stuff. That's why I work. If, the, if, if, that's, if that's it, if that's all there is, it's just this, this uh, cycle that we go through, get up, brush your teeth, have breakfast, go to work, do the thing, come home, and just repeat, 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 so we can pay the bills. If that's all it is, well, there's not a lot of excitement or fulfillment in that kind of attitude towards our work. Is your core reason for work connected to your identity? There's a lot of people that that's true. There are lots of people that they, they, they look at their job as their source of value. I'm important. I have value because my job is one that people are impressed with. Or on the other side... People don't think my job's that big of a deal. People aren't that impressed with my job, with my work. Therefore, I'm not important. Therefore, I don't have value. And if that's how we view work, that somehow that's where we get our identity, that that's where our value comes from, well, there's a lot of ways that could get sideways on us. What if you lose your job? For a, a bunch of different reasons, people can lose their job. What if you lose it? Like, your identity was tied to this job that people thought was really important and impressive, and now you don't have it. What do you do with that? Is our core reason to buy stuff for our identity? Well, a biblical, a biblical view of work has a very different, I believe, a much better answer to the question, why do I work? And we find it, we begin to build this theology in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, God had finished his work, his work of creation. God is a working and creative God. That's who he is. It, that nature, that character of God is revealed to us Right from the beginning, in the beginning, God created. At the end of the six days of creation and that intense, miraculous work, God rests. God is a working and creative God. And we look at, at chapter 1, verse 26, and we find this to be true about us. God said, let us make man, or human beings, in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, of the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, 
he created them. You and I are created in the image of a working and creative God. That, that is something that God has placed into us in his creation because that's who he is. God is the one who created work. He created work to be something good, something enjoyable. It was not originally intended to be uh, this toilsome thing that we feel like it's just a meaningless, task-driven hurdle that we have to get over every day just so we can enjoy life when we're finally done working. Work was a gift of God originally. If you go to, back to chapter 20, or 2, verse 15, God uh, creates human beings in his own image. And then in verse 15, look what he does. He's, he places man in the Garden of Eden, which was perfect. Everything God made was perfect. Verse 15 says, The Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to sit in a rocking chair and watch the birds fly. That's not what it says, right? Place the man in the Garden of Eden to tend, to work, to watch over it. Back in, in chapter 1, we see that there's this, uh, this rain over, over the earth. We see that God gave Adam the task of naming the animals and caring for this garden. From the very beginning, work was part of God's design plan for us. And it was good. Everything was good. Work was a gift to be uh, enjoyed. It was, some, it was a way for us to be creative like God, a way for us to feel a sense of accomplishment, a way for us to be a blessing to others and create beauty in the world that we live in. Have you ever stopped, and this is a little you know, philosophical, I guess, but have you ever wondered why we have art? Why why is there music? We don't need it to live. We don't need it like we need air, like we need food, like we need water. We won't die if we don't have music or if we don't have a painting on the wall. So why do we have these things? We have these things. There's a desire within us placed there by, by God because God is a working and creative God and we are made in his image. He's placed that desire in us to be creative, to make new things. I see it in architecture. You think about, you know, the, the evolutionary uh, ideas or philosophy uh, is uh, that we're no different than the animals, just maybe a little more sophisticated or whatever. Well, then why, why architecture? That makes no sense to me. That's, we don't need beautiful buildings, we, the animals, they're perfectly satisfied in the caves and, and in the holes in the ground and the nests. All we need is a box. We don't need anything more than a square box to survive. But that's not what we do. There is just incredible and beautiful architecture when it comes to structures that we live in and work in. Why? Because God has placed a desire within us, in His image, of being a working and creative God. He's placed that upon us and given us that desire. So when you and I work, when you and I create something new, we are doing exactly what God intended for us to do. 
paradise was not designed by God to be this permanent vacation. Paradise was designed by God to be a vocation. And, and one day when Jesus returns, when he restores creation back to the factory default of perfection, we're not going to, if you're a follower of Jesus and you get to spend eternity in heaven with God, uh, we're not going to float around on clouds for eternity playing, you know, bumper clouds or whatever. That's not what we're going to do for all of eternity. You're not going to be bored. We will work. We will enjoy our work and enjoy being creative as God has intended us to be. It will be satisfying to us. In talking to different folks about work and just kind of wanting to know what they think about it and how they view it, uh, I did hear from several people that uh, their first reaction was, well, the reason we work, we work because of sin. Uh, that's why we have to work, because sin entered the world and broke everything, and now we have to work. And it's somewhat partly true in the sense that sin has uh, impacted our work in a negative way, but uh, sin is not what brought work into the world. God has intended and designed work to be part of our lives from the very beginning. It's just that sin, when it did enter the world, it impacted our work in a very negative way. It made it hard. It made it toilsome. It made it laborious. And when sin enters anything, it just makes a mess and makes things a lot harder than it needs to be. When you go to work and you deal with greed and you deal with dishonesty and the lack of integrity, you deal with problems with your boss and problems with your coworkers that are all rooted in selfishness and pride and, and dishonesty and someone's trying to uh, get more than you and so they'll undercut you. All of those kinds of things are sin. And all of that negative stuff that we deal with, yes, sin has robbed much of the joy out of what God intended work to be. But you and I as followers of Christ, we don't, we don't have to view work the way the world sees it. We can, we can experience work in a different way and see it in a different way because of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that Christ died on the cross to destroy the curse of sin. And Jesus rose from the dead three days later, proving his victory over sin. So yes, the primary focus of the gospel is for you and I to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to forgive us of our sin, to make us right with God, to give us eternal life. That is the primary focus of the gospel. But the gospel also changes the way we see everything in life. We can see things that, yes... Uh, sin has, has broken and made a mess in, but we can see how Jesus, in the power of his resurrection, can redeem these things because he redeemed us. Because God's got a better plan for our lives than what sin does. We don't have to see work as just this uh, meaningless means to an end or a source for our identity or value. You and I can bring a biblical perspective to our work Believing that when we work, when we create, we are doing exactly what God has intended us to do. So are you defining work or is work defining you? After we rediscover our why and we continue to build this theology of work, we then need to take a very 
careful look at the way we view rest because God's plan for work also includes a plan for rest. Go back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 2. On the seventh day, this is verse 2, God had finished his work of creation and he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work in creation. Why? Why did God rest on the seventh day after six days of this miracle work of creation? Did he get tired? Was he out of breath? Was he, was he stressed out? Did he need a, a, a month vacation on the beach to recover? No, none of that is true. God doesn't get tired. He does not grow weary. His power never diminishes. The answer to the why God rested, we find in Exodus chapter 31. God was giving us, laying out an example for how he would uh, lay out his plan for our lives. We see that work is part of that plan for our lives, his good plan for our lives. But here, here we're going to find out that rest is also part of that plan. Now, go ahead and you can kind of peruse chapter 31. If you go to verse 12, that's where I'm going to jump in as we talk about the Sabbath. But I want you to understand the context of what we're reading. God's people, the Hebrew people, were in slavery in Egypt. Long, long time. And then God raises up Moses. Moses, he uses Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. Their entire lives, that, this generation that, uh, that God brought out of slavery and established them as, their, as, a, as a people group, as, the, as a nation, uh, that's all they ever knew is slavery. They were told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and if they didn't do it the way they were told, there were problems. That was their entire existence, and now that's no longer the case. God has brought them out of bondage, brought them out of slavery, so now what? Well, do we just continue to live like we did when we were slaves? Do we just continue to do everything the Egyptians did and, and, and just kind of do life that way? There's a lot of questions that need to be answered. How do we do life now? Everything has changed. Everything is different. How do we do life now? And so God provides the answers to those questions through Moses. You have the Ten Commandments. You have the law. You have all of these things. This is God's plan. This is how you establish government, how you establish uh, law and order, all of these things God provides for his people. And one of the things that God provided for his people was a gift of rest. Exodus 31, verse 12, the Lord then gave them these instructions to Moses. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so that you may know that I am the Lord. So there's one reason why it is given, that he's God and we're not. So we need that reminder. He's the one who makes us holy. He's the one who sets us apart. Verse 14, you must keep the Sabbath day for it is holy is a holy day for you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on the day will be cut off from his community uh, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day, listen to this, dedicated to the Lord. The original intent uh, was not just to take a break from work, but also to worship God. 
Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. The people of Israel must keep the Sabbath day by observing it from generation to generation. This is the covenant obligation for all time. It is a permanent sign of my covenant with the people of Israel. Now listen as this is taken back to the moment of creation. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed, not because he was tired, not because he was stressed, but as, as a pattern, as an example, as a, as a way to give us this gift of rest. Another important thing to keep in mind when it comes to uh, taking a break from our ordinary work and taking time to rest and reconnect with family is in Leviticus 23. This is an important part of how we understand God's expectation of what Sabbath rest is all about. It's resting from ordinary work. Uh, it's a way for us to, to reconnect uh, relationally. But it's also this. In, in Leviticus 23, uh, verse 7, the first, uh, actually, I'm going to back up. Verse 3, let's start there. Verse 3, you have six days each week for your ordinary work. The seventh day is a Sabbath day, complete rest, an official day for, listen, a holy assembly. It's the Lord's Sabbath day. It must be observed wherever you live. And it gets repeated on some of the other special days of rest, this idea of, uh, yes, we rest from our ordinary work. We, uh, we connect with each other, with our families. Uh, but we also set aside time to prioritize corporate worship. That was part of God's expectation of what Sabbath rest was to be about, that we would gather, that we would worship. So God rested on the seventh day, and he prescribed rest every week for his people as a gift to us. That was part of his plan for our lives. That's how he designed life for us to be. Why? Because he knows we need it. God knows that we have physical, emotional, mental, spiritual limits. God knows we need rest. God also knows that we need to prioritize this this gathering together for corporate worship. We need that. It's not just an add-on. I got nothing better to do this weekend. I guess I'll go to church. God knows we need this for our soul to come together to give him our best worship, to connect with each other, to fellowship. Our soul needs that. And so God built that plan, his good plan for our lives in that way. Now, you may have noticed the Old Testament laws there in Exodus. They were pretty strict. The, the penalty was pretty steep for violation of that. Well, we go to the New Testament. When, when Jesus came to the earth, he certainly uh, reaffirmed the importance of the Sabbath, not just in what he taught, but uh, in the way that he lived. In, in his example, he, he took time himself to rest. He got away from the crowds. He worked hard. And then he got away to rest and to reconnect with God. He took time just alone with his, with his friends, his disciples. All of these things we see uh, Jesus uh, demonstrating in the way that he did life. But he also said this, and I find it to be refreshing personally. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Just a reminder that the whole point, that the, the, he dialed down some of the legalistic uh, views of what the Sabbath was all about and said, guys, the Sabbath is a gift. It's, it's a gift from God uh, for, from him to you. 
So God's plan for work includes a plan for rest, for reconnection, and for worship. I want you to think about your current work schedule. And I, I know we've got a variety of folks in the room. Uh, some of you are retired. Some of you are full-time students. Some of you are right in smack dab middle, in the middle of uh, your life of work. But are you taking time to rest? Are you making time to reconnect with your family? Are you making worship with your church family a priority in the first service? Uh, about halfway through the sermon, the, the batteries in, in my microphone pack went dead. And uh, I didn't really realize it, except what I noticed was this. After they kind of got my attention and said, hey, your batteries are dead. Uh, what I didn't realize was happening is I was working a lot harder because I didn't, I didn't really pick up on it. And I was speaking much louder, working much harder. Uh, and uh, then they said, hey, your, your batteries are dead. Your batteries need to be, need to be replaced. And I think uh, in God's sovereignty, it was a pretty cool illustration. I want to thank the Holy Spirit. That, uh, it was one of those uh, moments where it's like, oh, yeah, there are times when our batteries are dead and maybe we don't even realize that it's happened and we're working and we're working and we're working and it's getting harder and harder. And, and once the batteries are replaced, boy, it got a lot easier. It sounded a lot better. Everything was better when the batteries were replaced. And sometimes I think we forget that about our lives. God knows that about us, that we need to be recharged. We need to be refreshed. We need to be together for worship. And keeping all of that in, in proper balance is hard. I know that. Uh, just keep in mind that, uh, that God's original intent for rest, yes, time away from work, yes, time with your family, but it's also time in worship. And I, I have found for me, even though it's difficult to keep that in balance sometimes, for me it's just honest conversation, especially with my spouse. That's who I, I tend to check in with when it comes to my, my time uh, in ministry here, uh, the national stuff, uh, the travel stuff that I do with them, uh, all those kind of things. I just, I have found for me having honest conversations with her, how am I doing? Am I spending too much time here or there, whatever? Uh, and, and maybe you've got a spouse that you can have those honest conversations with. Hopefully you have someone uh, that you can evaluate this. My, my conclusion to all of that is that God has a plan, yes, for our work, but he also has a plan for rest. So are you defining work or is work defining you? A biblical view of work not only sees work and rest as God's good plan for our lives, but also this theology of work believes that you and I, as followers of Christ, we reflect God in the way that we work, that we see all work, whatever it is, all effort, as ministry, whether you're uh, at work in the marketplace, whether you are uh, in schoolwork, whether you're at the retirement home and you have effort. It's ministry here at, at church. It's all for the glory of God. It is all ministry. We see that in Colossians chapter 3. If you look at that with me, in Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament. Listen to this, Colossians 3, 22. Now, the context here is the relationship between a slave and a slave master. It's not our cultural context. Thank the Lord it's not. 
But that was the, the context, the cultural context there at that time. The, the principle is still enduring, though, when it comes to the relationship between employer and employee. 22, uh, Colossians chapter 3, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time. Here's the enduring principle. Not just when they're watching you, serve them sincerely, and here's the why. The why is, is the same for all of us because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly, whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. No matter what your work is, no matter what the effort that you're putting forth may be, we do it for the glory of God. We do it for Him as if we were working directly for Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 reiterates that point. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be the best employee where you work. You should be the hardest worker, the most dependable worker, the, the, the worker who can be counted on to be honest and have integrity. The standard for our work should always be, I'm going to give my best because I'm working for God. Now, sometimes the hurdles that get in the way of that are our own laziness, our own bad attitudes. We get ticked off about this. Or we don't think we're tre- being treated fairly. And so I'm not going to give you my best until you pay me more. And sometimes those things can creep into our minds, into our hearts. And we have to come back to why we're doing what we're doing for the glory of God. But sometimes it's not even us that's the hurdle. Sometimes it's the laziness and the bad attitudes of people around us that can make this standard of excellence a challenge for us. I remember my work-study experience in college. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, it uh, work-study in college, everybody gets whatever the standard rate is. They put you into a job. They pick the job for you. My job in college for two years was on the grounds crew. So my... It was physical labor. I had to spread mulch. Uh, we, we helped cut up trees, pick up garbage. I got sweaty, and it was gross. It was hard work. And I got paid the same amount of money as the student who was working at the sports complex who sat behind a desk reading and studying while people checked in. All they had to do was make sure that there was a sign-in sheet. That's, that's all their job was, and they got paid the same as me. And so it could be easy. It would be super easy to say, I'm not going to give uh, a full effort. Why should I get paid the same amount? I'm out here, you know, the spreading mulch and sweating and getting dirty, and I've got to go back to class later on, and all this person's doing is sitting behind it. It's not fair. Pay me more, and I'll work harder. It would be super easy to find yourself in that mindset about work. In fact, I had a student... Uh, a, a co-worker uh, that came to me one day and confronted me quite, uh, w- quite annoyed with me. And his comment was this, listen, you are working way too hard and you are making me look bad. You need to chill out. What do you do with that? That guy was bigger than I was, first of all. He was very intimidating Uh, but I just kept, I I believe in the theology of work that I need to give God my best. He was eventually fired. I was eventually promoted, and then he beat me up. No, he he, 
He didn't beat me up. I don't think I ever saw the guy on campus again. Uh, but those kinds of situations in life, when, when other people are saying, dial it down, dude. You know, why are you going so hard? Why? Because a theology of works tells us I'm going to give my employer my absolute best because that's what, I, that's what I'm giving God. I'm giving God my absolute best. Whether you're on the sports team, whether you're uh, in your schoolwork, whether it's just how you're uh, helping out your neighbor, always, always give God your best. And it's not just employees that are responsible to God for the way that we view work, the employer, the boss, the owner, the, uh, the supervisor, the manager. A theology of work believes that he or she is accountable to God for how we treat those under our authority. We see that again in Colossians 4. Again, the cultural context of master and slave owner are not the same as our context, praise God. But uh, the point is the enduring principle is the same. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Uh, remember, I love this, remember that you also have a master in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, uh, listen to the way it's worded there. S- similar principle, masters, treat your slaves the same way. Don't threaten them. Uh, but here's the why. Listen to the why. Since you know that he is both... Uh, their master and yours in heaven and with him, with God, there's no favoritism. With God, there's no favoritism between the employer and the employee. There's no favoritism between the slave and the slave owner as far as value is concerned. God sees them the same. Sinners in need of God's grace. A biblical view of work in in this role of authority understands we have to work really hard to find this balance between uh, fairness and and reasonableness, generosity, grace. Those are important values, but also in balance with an expectation, a high expectation of excellence. And it's not easy to do. It's easy. It's easy to fall into the attitude that says, listen, I'm the boss. Do what I say and shut up. That's easy to fall into. It's much more difficult to come back to a biblical theology of work as a manager, a supervisor, uh, an owner, and understand your role in God's sight and how you lead. But are you defining work? Or is work defining you? Finally, a solid theology of work needs to be rooted in the belief that who we are in Christ is who we are at work. In fact, you can, you can fill in the blank with anything there. Who you are in Christ is who you are at school. It's who you are at the store, who you are in public, who you are in private. Who you are in Christ should be who we are wherever we are. And when our wicked culture puts pressure on us to conform, to compromise our biblical principles, our values, our ethics, what does God expect of us? To just go along with it? Jesus answers that question in Luke chapter 9. If you look at that with me, Luke chapter 9, listen to the words of Jesus in verse 23. If you want to be my follower, you have to turn from your selfish ways. It can't be all about you. Life's not all about you. You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, this daily willingness to sacrifice yourself 
and then you can follow Jesus. You try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? And here's the key. If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. This principle that Jesus gives about not being ashamed of who we are in Christ uh, then uh, lives itself out in the life of the Apostle Paul. When, when Paul was in prison, he wrote a letter to Pastor Timothy. And in that letter in 2 Timothy, he challenges Timothy, do not be ashamed of who you are in Jesus. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Even if it costs you something, even if you suffer because of the gospel, don't be ashamed. And he, and he gives himself as an example in that letter. He says, I'm in, I'm in prison. Why was he in prison? Did he get a DUI charge? No, that's not why he was in prison. He was in prison because the people of his culture said that his beliefs and who he was in Jesus did not match up with what they valued. It was unacceptable to be who he was in Jesus to that culture. And so he found himself in jail. And his conclusion was, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know that he would go as far as say, this is the best time I've ever had in my life. This is super pleasant. I'm sure it was unpleasant. But he was willing to suffer for the sake of who he is in Jesus Christ. And that's the challenge that he gave to Timothy. That's the challenge that you and I have today. It's entirely possible that you may suffer loss because of who you are in Jesus Christ. And it does not match up with what a sinful culture expects you to believe or expects you to do. And I'm not trying in any way to minimize how difficult, how scary losing a job would be. But that's why it's so important for you as a believer to make sure you know what you believe and why you believe it. Because if you don't have conviction on biblical values, if you don't have conviction on biblical morals and ethics that, you, that are rooted in God's word, if you don't have conviction, you're probably not going to have courage to do the hard thing. You're probably not going to be willing to say, you know what, <laughs> no, I'm not going to participate I'm not going to compromise because this is who I am in Jesus Christ. Courage to be who we are in Christ in the workplace begins when we stop seeing ourselves as a cashier, a farmer, a waitress, a teacher, an office worker who oh, also happens to be, by the way, a Christian. And we start seeing ourselves as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, who also, by the way, happens to be a secretary, a salesperson, an accountant, a, a lawyer, a retired person, a full-time student. Knowing who we are in Christ is what will keep our integrity intact. It will give us the courage we need to stand up and walk out if our biblically-based morals, values, and ethics are challenged. 
You need to understand that you are where you are because that's where God has placed you for this season. You are exactly where God has placed you and he has given you an opportunity that I don't have. He's given you an opportunity to preach a sermon where you work, not with a pulpit, not with a formal sermon in this sense, but where you work, you get every day, you have the opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that you live, in, in the choices that you make, the priorities that you make, the integrity that you have, the words that come out of your mouth, or the moments that you keep silent. You have the opportunity to demonstrate daily where you are at school, at work, wherever you are, what it looks like to follow Jesus and what he's done in your life. I can't do that where you work. I can't do that where you go to school. That's where God's placed you. And if I may be so bold as to challenge the believers here today with a phrase that is common to the sports world, do your job. Do your job. Are you defining work or is work defining you? Lord, thank you so much for the moments that we've had together this morning in your word. I thank you for this challenge. I, I thank you for the opportunity, the freedom that we have to gather here and the health that we enjoy and able to, to do this. Lord, I pray that as we consider a, a biblical perspective, not just of work, but of all things in life, uh, I pray that there would be this strong desire in our lives. No matter what we're talking about, no matter what the subject matter, that our desire would be to bring you glory, that our desire would be to consider, well, how is it that God wants me to see this, to view this, to, to, to live this out? What does is, what is God's word have to say about this issue in my everyday life? That that would be the default way of thinking for us. Not to go and figure out what's the culture thing is best or what's the, what's, uh, what's the most popular thing, you know, the fad going on and to, to just not be interested in that but be interested in the truth of your word. Help us to have wisdom and discernment and a desire for you and your best for our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song.